Welcome to What Is It About the Weather, where once a week we get together and explore the many ways that weather intertwines itself into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelinek, and this week we're going to be talking about finicky produce. But as always, before jumping into the main topic, let me take a moment to say thank you to all of you who are taking time to support the podcast. Now, there are a variety of ways we've talked about doing that in each episode over the years. And you can learn more about it at whatisitabouttheweather.com slash support. You can learn how to be our marketing arm. Tell other people about us. How to be our research and development arm. Give us thoughts about shows. Episodes, even if it's just questions for, you know, Q&A bits. You can learn how to be part of the finance department, which, of course, is very important. Whatever it is. Whichever part of the team you want to be on, even if you want to be part of the whole team, feel free. I'm not going to stop you. But thank you for all of you who have taken the time over the course of the past couple of years to lend your support. You'll have to excuse me. I had to hit the pause button there. A bit of a sneeze. Yeah, still dealing with a little pollen around here, although we had a nice rain, which helped to clear things out a little. But I have a feeling this is going to be one of those episodes where my head is going, well, you might sneeze, you might sneeze. I tend to do these in waves. I know, I'm sure I'm not the only one with that. The once it hits me for a little while, I, I'm on edge or my brain's on edge. That'll usually settle down. Again, I don't suffer too bad from springtime pollen-based allergies. I think I do some. I think it's probably more common than we we all realize. All right. The other thing I I had happen this week that, that taught me a little bit about my favorite weather movie. Now, I know we've done a whole episode, even back in the day, like in the very beginning, about favorite weather movies. We talked about some different ones that I like, some different ones that I don't like, and we did the kind of the repeat or the update not too long ago. We, I guess the new Hurricane Heist movie was coming out, and we talked a little bit about that and put some stuff out on, on YouTube for people to look at if they were so inclined. But I think I can definitively say how I came to the conclusion that Twister is indeed my favorite weather movie. Now, there's a lot of movies I'll watch and I'll watch them. You know, if I'm flipping the channel and I see it, I may stop or, you know, be, have an urge, I guess, to go catch a movie that I haven't seen in a while. That's a weather movie that I like, but I have decided the only one that continuously will guide my behavior with remote control is Twister. If I see it in the listing on any channel, doesn't matter where it's showing, doesn't matter what time it is, unless I had something specific I was going to watch, Twister ends up on my screen. And I think the reason why, it's really funny, actually when I was looking back at it, I never saw Twister, it's not like I saw it in the movie theater, and I probably didn't see it the first few years it was out. I'm like that with a lot of movies I've really liked over the years. Matrix is a similar movie on the sci-fi front that I didn't see it when it first came out. But with Twister, 
you know, I can relate to it in so many ways. I can appreciate the, the, even the corniness of it at times. But I was watching the other day, and, you know, even with all the times I've seen it, you know, something new caught me in the film. And I, I guess I like that part about it, too. But I have a close enough relationship to it in all the things, whether it's forecasting or doing research or just enjoying being out of weather, that it, you know, it just, I don't know, it, it, it appeals to me in a way maybe it doesn't for everybody. But I do like all the silliness. I, I was laughing the other day at the scene, there's a scene, right, for those who haven't seen the movie, where a tricycle slams into a windshield and for all the flaws in this movie about the, the cracked windshield in the big truck and how it shows up then disappears and reappears, this tricycle slams into the windshield and of course nothing happens, which seems a little unplausible to me if a tornado were really throwing that thing around. I don't know. Maybe it was at the end of its range and it just mildly dropped it. It doesn't matter, does it? All right, enough about me talking about Twister. Let's move on to the main topic. Finicky produce. That's right, we're going to be talking about finicky produce. Now, lots of crops grown all over the world. Tons of them. And so, what is it about this finicky stuff? Well, a term has become very popular in this hyper-local age in which we live called weather zones. Maybe you've heard it thrown around. And I heard it not too long ago in discussion with California. California's got to do everything a little different, don't they? And the Bay Area of California, San Francisco area, I don't know, I heard somebody say they had somebody like 19 distinct weather zones or whatever it is. And anybody that's ever spent time there knows that there is some truth to that, that different parts of the Bay Area have very different weather. And, you know, if you live in one or work in one and don't go to the others, you may be surprised when you go to other ones that are just a few miles away. You know, maybe you go over a mountain ridge. Or maybe you are closer to the confines of the cold ocean. But where I first heard about weather zones actually had a very different term. So, you know, it's it's become big about people. We've got all these forecasting tools that are hyper-local and they'll tell you your weather versus the people maybe on the other side of that ridge, whatever it is. But I heard about it with something called a microclimate. And this term's been around a little longer, maybe, than weather zone. Although weather zone's kind of a, a term we use for broader scale things, but people have just put it to use for smaller areas. But a microclimate really tells us a little bit about a small-scale region, and that's the thing. It doesn't precisely tell us how small, but, but let's say that you know we're talking not something on the order of the size of a city. We're talking taking a city and splitting it up in different ways. So technically, it can be things like that are just a few meters, but, but in nature, they tend to be you know, a few kilometers, let's say, at a minimum. They may not. They may be something like a few acres of land. But usually something's going on 
in the vicinity that's creating a distinctive environment for recurring weather behavior. Now, let's think about what some of those things are. And I kind of mentioned it when I was talking about weather zones. It might be proximity to a, a large body of water. So, for instance, if you're in a location that's next to a very cool ocean or a warm ocean, or even if you've ever gone to the beach, anybody that's gone to the beach knows right on the beach might be very different weather than just a short distance inland, depending on how cold that water is, as a rule of thumb, what the normal wind flow pattern is around that. So it has a very distinctive impact. Things as simple as orientation of the sun. You know, are you on a side of a of a hill that gets sunlight throughout the year? Or does it? You know, you're far enough north or south from the equator that you get shading patterns that are different. Or sunlight patterns. And that brings us, of course, to elevation. You may look at something. It's it's interesting. One of the things in, in Santiago, there's this kind of hill that splits part of the city. But what's neat is in winter, when we had the few snow events we have, is sometimes parts of that hill, the top part of it, would get snow, yet the bottom part wouldn't. And you really kind of get a, an impression. You get this in the Andes around the city, broadly anyways, that you can really see the snow line quite often. But even this one right in the city, you could be maybe in a tall building and you can see where that snow line might be at the equivalent of your elevation, <laughs> your balcony. But a few floor down, a few floors down from you might have just gotten rain. And of course, all these things impact the vegetation that will grow in these different setups. Hence, this agriculture connection. Now, the first time I ever heard about microclimates related to it actually had to do with coffee. And specifically, it had to do with coffee grown on the island of Puerto Rico. There was a particular brand that I came to know about, and this is probably a couple decades ago, called Alto Grande. Still around. And that's a, it's actually a sad story, what's, what happened with the hurricanes this past year. It's really thrown the whole coffee production on the island of Puerto Rico for a loop. But we'll see where it goes from here. Hopefully they'll they'll be able to rebound. A lot of the, the brands, at least, are owned by the Coca-Cola company now, and hopefully they are, they'll figure out a way to, to help the farmers and revitalize. But in any case, that the coffee, you know, it had a distinctive flavor to it, and supposedly it had to do with this microclimate. But it wasn't the only one on the island. There were others. And some of them may have, you know, played that line a little bit more, uh, you know, than, than every other brand. But, you know, it, I guess to me, and, and, and is with, with a lot of things, you've got to know, sometimes you, maybe you do really taste a difference. For other things, it's like, I don't know, and it, there's another island coffee. It's like, I think it's, I'm not even 100% sure. It's in Jamaica. I want to say it's Blue Mountain or something. Again, it's a, this microclimate supposed to create a distinctive taste. And maybe for some of our palates, we recognize it, and other people may go, eh, it just tastes like a cup of coffee to me. I think every every person's a little different. But the taste, the first time I really could say that I 
noticed the difference distinctively. So in the coffee, I'd heard about it, and it was good coffee, but I didn't know if it was specifically because of the weather. had to do with wines and viticulture. And in this area, the first place I, I came across it was in what are called late harvest wines and sometimes ice wines. And late harvest wines are, are some of the sweeter wines that you may come across. Because as you get from the name, right, these wines come from grapes that are left on the vine longer than maybe some of the others and get a higher sugar content. And ice wines even more so. Ice wines happen because the grapes actually freeze. And you get this high concentration of the sugars that we don't get otherwise. So it's been used in that industry, particularly the wine industry, for a very long time. And there are regions, and so these microclimates are much larger. It may not be the side of a mountain. It may be a whole valley. Or it may be an area of wine that you don't think about a lot. So let's take upstate New York. You don't necessarily think, oh, the best wines in the world come from upstate New York, but they've been growing them there a long time. And late harvest wines are very well known in that area because of the type of growing season they have and the way it tends to usually end with these colder temperatures, and they're able to do that. So it's something we've understood for a long time. I mean, you've probably seen ideas of stepped agriculture on the side of mountains and things like that. So it's it's not something new to us. And there's even great historic examples. Like Thomas Jefferson's estate, Monticello, and, the, and actually I found an article written by the Capital Weather Gang folks about this, had a great setup for very specific things that made it almost tropical in terms of what you could grow there. Now, the rest of the region right around them, there's no way. But the setup worked very well. The way it faced the sun. An elevation change, which steered wind patterns in a certain way. But more and more, it's becoming mainstream. And the next time I ran across it had to do with avocados in Chile and how these farmers were recognizing that they got different varieties would either grow better or the flavor pattern would change depending where on the hillside the avocado tree was. And this led to a huge boom in terms of available location for growing avocados. And of course, with that came other problems. Chile's got a kind of a unique setup in that their whole water distribution system was privatized under Pinochet. And this has led to some real challenges. And I'm not going to get into all the politics of that, but let's say that... Um, Sometimes when you're getting a good Chilean avocado, there's probably somebody who uh, might not be having indoor plumbing because of that. But the water rights were all bought up, and I don't know, it makes it tricky. Of course, it leads to other debates, and certainly this is not the only place in the world where they have those challenges. But it points to it, you know, those sort of real challenges we see in agriculture across the globe. 
But in Chile, one of the things they have that's that's different than so in in the U.S. and I'm I'm not saying exclusively, you tend to have one or two types of avocado. The premium brand or this premium type is the Haas avocado. Or that style. But in Chile, we get all these other styles that have different flavors. And I don't know, it's just it's sort of interesting. A lot of them are not exported. Or, or they're exported not to places like the U.S. where they're used to a certain palate type. But it's the uniqueness of, of chili structure and the creative use of irrigation because a lot of places that are good for growing aren't necessarily good in chili anyways because it doesn't occur naturally to have the water naturally occurring at the appropriate times of the year. And that's the thing we have changed, right? And actually I came across a study in South Africa, of all things, now in this past year, you've probably heard about it, big drought problems, right, that they've been dealing with. But they've been exploring more and more different microclimates within their country and how it might be good for growing avocados, which is was interesting. There was a whole research. I think I found a thesis that, that um, let, me, let me look down here through my show notes just for an example. I think it was there yeah that somebody had done their research thesis man if you ever want to read a, this i think it was for a master's degree so similar to what i got it wasn't in the same discipline but you can get a sense of um oh, the whole process i guess uh you've seen where i've put links in the show notes to journal articles and that sort of thing in the past and they may have their own dryness to them but Thesis work is even a step beyond that because all the formatting and rules that apply to what's in the paper and how it's laid out and all this stuff, I still don't understand it. I don't think anybody who's reviewing it gains necessarily from that specific structure. But whatever, <laughs> not my job. But it was an interesting look just in general about some of the ways in which we're looking at microclimates as a society and creating microclimates. So they've existed, like I said, for a long time. We've recognized that certain areas are better for growing certain things than others, or, or certain crops only grow there, like the uh, cocoa tree, right? That can only grow in the tropics in a certain setup. But this also, as we've tried to grow these stuff and harvest it and make it more dense. We've created other problems with, with funguses. I mean, and this happened with bananas, right? We know you can only kind of grow that in certain areas. But the type of banana we eat today is very different than the type of banana we ate 50 years ago because that crop was devastated. And, and we got the same problem with chocolate, if you will, because there's not enough distinction in the genetics of that to be to sustain certain diseases. So as we have a more crowded planet, which we certainly are currently doing, we tend to look at different things like genetically altering plants. And you know anybody who follows a little bit of agriculture knows there's been a lot of, I don't know, talk in that area, work in that area, and maybe for some people, they don't want to see that. But, you know, we've been genetically altering things and splicing together plants for a long time. We may not have done it at a seed level, like some of the discussion. 
But splicing together plants has been done in agriculture for centuries. Not a new thing. Grafting together of plants. So you might want to ask, is, is doing a microclimate a better solution? Because we can create them now. We can create them with shading options. I mean, you think about it. Even a greenhouse creates a microclimate, right? And this gets into those tiny microclimates. But even anybody who's ever grown produce around their house will know, how do I, what might I grow on the sunny side versus a shady side versus one that you know, has maybe some tree canopy to protect it? All those things come into play. And they can with agriculture as well. And maybe with a little ingenuity, we'll be able to get to a point where we can create those microclimates closer to home for more types of produce and give us some flexibility to grow more locally. And that's where I'm curious to see where, where it kind of goes. You know, will it allow us to bring more produce production back to a local setup. You know, the tricky part on the flip side of that, of course, is, is it so inefficient to create these microclimates locally that it's not a good idea? I mean, part of the reason we, we end up with these big growing regions for certain crops is they're well suited for it, right? But the chili example is, a, is one where, you know, these water resources are taxed in a way that they weren't previously. So maybe the growing part is ideal, but maybe the nutrient part isn't ideal. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see these microclimates. So if you ever hear the word microclimate, now you know, right? And you can create them. We do all the time. But even as you walk around where you live, you may notice and think about the sunny side versus the shady side, or how trees give a certain area. I mean, we see it with anything you might have planted in the ground. What grows in one part of you know a yard you have or in the park where you go in the city may not grow in another part. These are all really microclimates. Fun stuff. All right. Just think about that the next time you're eating specialized produce or if they go to the point of telling you about it on the packaging that it was grown in a specific region. I don't know. Read about it. It's easier to do in this day and age, right? It's kind of fun stuff. You know, I wanted to recommend a couple articles today. You know, sometimes I do. I come across interesting things. I found one about Earth Day that was sort of interesting. And I found one. There, there was this other thing last week that came out that the women of NASA were talking about their favorite space-related movies. It was an interesting story. I think it was done by the BBC. And then I saw this follow-up article that talked about this huge debate that created. And my challenge with it is that huge debate was only created, and you've heard me mention this before, because the author used the word huge debate to describe the fact that People were discussing it on Twitter. Well, you know what? People discuss a lot of stuff on Twitter. And that's not necessarily a debate. And everybody's got opinions. So instead, I will recognize neither of those articles officially and just say that uh, maybe go do the search about the NASA women movies. It, it, there was a clip. You can find the clip easy enough. It's sort of interesting. 
why they like certain movies, why they didn't like other movies. It was neat to see. Any case, as you go through the week, whether you're thinking about space movies, whether you're thinking about Twister, whether you're thinking about food you're eating, and how maybe, just maybe, it's produced in a tiny little grid somewhere because that grid happens to be just right for what you're looking for. Just remember the role that weather plays in all that. How weather gives us these little microclimates. You know, combine those weather patterns with a, the setup of the topography, the elevation, the other vegetation around. And I mean, that's the other thing we're learning, right? Is sometimes having crops grown within other vegetation is actually a good thing. So you don't necessarily want to clear out all the other stuff just because the region's good. It's something more to it than that. Whatever it is. Learn a little bit more about what you're putting in your mouth and enjoying, hopefully. Because as we all know, there's much more to weather than the weather itself. This is too much for production. We're tired of hearing our uncle grovel, so please support him on patreon.com slash weather.